again, welcome to Trinity. We're glad that you are with us this morning. We're glad that you're with us either here in person or online. Uh, We have the joy and privilege of being able to turn to God's Word uh, together and uh, consider it, and uh, let's do so by turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to be considering verses 1 through 12 of this chapter that really sort of is the nugget for chapters 8 and 9. And so we're going to really zero in on these 12 verses, knowing that it's really covering a, a, a significant thought that our preacher in Ecclesiastes is tackling. As you're turning there, uh, just to encourage you, uh, we were joking a little bit um, before the service that uh, we needed uh, a happier book of the Bible to go to after Ecclesiastes. And so in the fall, we're excited to move into Ephesians. And so uh, can't get much happier than Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you want to be thinking ahead and reading ahead and familiarizing yourself with Ephesians, please do so. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting with verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns on an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol which you are going. Let's pray. God, as we consider these words, uh, we certainly need uh, you to be with us in the preaching, in the hearing, the receiving, the believing, and the trusting of your word. We ask your glory and to our good. Amen. If there was a generation that has to come to grips with not being in control, it is It's got to be the Gen X generation. Easily overlooked, forgotten, not considered. Now the irony is Gen X culture is firmly perched atop the lucrative 
Nostalgia Empire. The soundtrack of my youth is filling popular films of today like The Batman and Thor, Love and Thunder. Yet, Gen X people are easily forgotten. That's kind of our motto, easily forgotten. Social sciences obsess over boomers or millennials because they are bigger generations. Gen Xers are like, you know, we're standing right here in the room with you all, too, and yet so easily forgotten. Did you also know that the last two presidents were supposed to be Gen Xers? And I would argue we would be better off. The Gen X era itself covers a wide period of time and has a variety of defining, say, pop cultural moments. Your older Gen Xers would identify more with the Breakfast Club, and your younger Gen Xers might be more moved by a movie called Reality Bites. Both movies express the angst and the coming of age to the world, a, a world that has overlooked this generation. In Reality Bites, a group of friends just finished up with college and come to grips with adulthood and uncertainties and the startling reality that they are not in control in this fleeting world. They experience all sorts of frustrations and challenges while trying to keep hold of whatever control they think they have. One of the characters was the valedictorian of her graduating class, and she got fired from a job. One of her less-than-valedictorian, goofier friends said this in response, you got fired? I mean, that just screws up my whole idea of good and evil and God. Sometimes we experience things in life that messes with our perspective of good and evil and God. When we realize we are not in control of the things in our lives. Experiencing the uncertainties of life can certainly have a similar impact on us. Sounds an awful lot like what we've been considering in Ecclesiastes. At the heart of this impact is that we don't have nearly as much control over our lives as we think we do, and we experience deep levels of frustration when the uncertainties of life blow up in our lives. So how do we, how do we live well while we're not in control? How do we live well when we're not in control? That's our objective this morning as we consider this passage, living well while not in control. Living well and not, while not in control recognizes some, some stark realities. The first is it recognizes what is certain. Living well while not in control sees what is definitely certain in this life. We'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, living well while not in control also recognizes what is uncertain, which is just about everything else. And then thirdly, and hopefully, living well and while not in control recognizes what is a gift. So let's consider these together first. I want to say I'm indebted to um, a man named David Gibson who did some incredible work on Ecclesiastes and he has a nice little resource called Living Life Backwards. And the heart of his resources really kind of comes to bear in this passage. And so 
as we consider living life backwards, we start with our first point. Living well in a world in which we don't have nearly as much control understands what is certain. And what is certain in this life is death. That is certain. Death is an equal opportunity certainty. You could say that death is unkind, unavoidable, and universal. The first three verses of Ecclesiastes 9 state that, and in verse 3 it says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The certainty of death. Death comes to us all. It is an evil, the preacher says. Not just that death itself is evil, in that it is the direct result of the fall. It's the direct result of sin. It's what exists because of sin. But it's also evil in that how indiscriminate death is to our feelings on the matter. Death doesn't really care what we think about death. Ours or or people we love or death in general, it does not care. Death just does death things. And so the preacher calls it an evil. Now, you got to, we're in this like death comes to us all. You, you understand why I had to start this with Gen X generation because that's just kind of our brooding like ethos. Yep, life happens and then we die. So, so it just felt fitting to start there. But let's not stay in that. Let's consider some things on the upward swing out of it. But first, we see that it is an evil, and then secondly, we see it's the same event, like it or not, on all of our timelines, is the unavoidable date with death. It's unavoidable. Can't escape it. And then thirdly, we find that it happens to all. Tall, short, rich, poor, first world, third world, healthy, unhealthy, the event of death is universal. And so the preacher from under the sun calls all of this an evil, that the worst criminal and the most selfless mom all experience the same event. Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem fair. Death is unkind, unavoidable, and universal. Secondly, we see that death is not to be ignored. As we think about life, we cannot ignore death. In verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 9, we see, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. We are not to ignore death. We are not to act as if it's not a real thing. The older you get, the more relevant death becomes. The younger you are, the further away it seems. So some of this seems unavoidable, but the preacher is bringing death to bear on our manner of living. Don't ignore the certainty of death. As we said last week, death can be an incredible teacher, shaping us to live wisely and with hope in the present. But we aren't to ignore it. As we think about the, what is certain, that death is unkind, unavoidable, universal, and it is not to be ignored, that honest assessment and understanding of death can lead to a hopeful living of life. 
Let me say that again. An honest understanding of death can lead to a hopeful living of life. For example, you cannot go about ignoring the rattling in the car or the rattling in your lungs. You have to do something about both of those rattling things. You can't ignore them out of existence. They don't just ignore away. You must address the rattling car or the rattling lungs. If you don't, it's like painting over mold in your house. You've got to get rid of the mold. Death is, for us, an honest certainty that we cannot ignore away. Pretending death isn't a reality is only asking to feel anxiety about all that comes in this life. Let's go on a little exercise. Let's say we teleport you to your death, to your day of your death, but you get to look back down the corridors of time until this very present moment. So you're at your day of your death and you're looking back down the corridors of time to this present day. What sort of perspective would that give you? How might that shape the what and the how and the why of what you invest your time, emotion, and energy in and what you don't invest your time and emotion and energy in? That's a helpful exercise. You cannot control death. You cannot run from it. You cannot ignore it away. But death can be a helpful tool for you to be honest and hopeful in life. That is what is certain. Living well in a world you cannot control recognizes what is certain, is not afraid of it, doesn't run from it, understands it, lives in light of it. Secondly, we see that living well while not in control recognizes what is uncertain. What is uncertain? And that's basically everything else. And this uncertainty does something really helpful for us. The uncertainty of life really does go about smashing the idolatry of control. Uncertainty smashes the idolatry of control that we can control our lives. Because ultimately, life can't be controlled. Not to the degree that we would want it. We certainly have things that we are able to, to have oversight on and, and have discipline with, etc. But we can't control all the stuff of life. I don't have to convince you. You know this. Verse 11, chapter 9. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. You could be the fastest. You could be the strongest. You could be the wisest. You could be the most intelligent. You could be the most knowledgeable. But languish in obscurity or chaos because life happens. And it's an uncertainty. And it cannot be controlled. The word for chance just literally means happenings, time and happenings, and and the things of life, they just keep on happening. It's the variety and unexpected happenings of life. 
No one necessarily plans skin cancer or a job loss or losing your credit card. Things of life, they, they just they happen. We often get bent when the uncertainties of life certainly happen because we think we have some sort of control over our lives. And control, in the sense that we sometimes pursue it like an idol, is a fool's errand. God does not call us to be in control, but rather to be faithful, following him in all of the things of this life. Of course, we don't want to be foolish. Control and living foolishly aren't necessarily the same things that I'm trying to juxtapose here. But to think that we can be in control of a life that is filled with uncertainties is only asking to be anxious. And God is calling us to be faithful, to trust him in the midst of the uncertainties, at least from our perspective, they certainly feel like uncertainties in this life. A question to ask ourselves, how many of the anxieties that thrive in our hearts because we have an idolatrous relationship with control. That's not to say all anxieties are based on control. I'm just asking, are there some of those kinds of things happening in us? Life can't be controlled. That, I guess, is a certainty about how life is uncertain. Secondly, life can change suddenly. Life can change suddenly. Verse 12. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. To drive this home further, the preacher highlights the suddenness of change that hits us unpredictably. We can map out our lives with great precision and wisdom, yet we do so not knowing our times. We do so not knowing what our days will be filled with. We will begin to resent life when we think we have control over it and it still goes haywire on us. The preacher is helping us to deal with things of life in an honest way, to not ignore them or pretend they don't exist. It's as if he's talking about all the elephants in the room, one by one through this book. And this honest understanding of uncertainty can lead to humble living in all circumstances. When we come to grips with the uncertainties in life, the sovereignty of God, it can foster in our hearts a humble gratitude for his grace and his presence and his sovereignty in the midst of all of the circumstances in life. Does not mean it will be easy to go through all of those circumstances. Don't think humble posture equals easy life. That's actually probably very far apart. Oftentimes, the humble posture is coming because life is so hard, and God is allowing it in our lives for reasons that are mysterious to us, but good for him to bring about our hearts to have a humble reliance upon him. But an honest understanding of uncertainty can and indeed, by God's grace, lead us to humble living in all circumstances. But I will say this. Yes, go make plans. 
Pursue them with great affection. Do so with great purpose. I have three teenage sons, so I'm saying this often. (laughs) So yes, I say that to us. Make plans, pursue them with great affection, do them with an open hand, knowing that life can change suddenly. Humbly acknowledge that you are not in control, but as you do, slay the idol of control because it cannot deliver. It cannot deliver. It's as if James chapter 4, in James chapter 4, James was thinking of Ecclesiastes. James 4, verses 13 through 15, he says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. May not seem like a very big change in perspective, but it is quite significant. To humble ourselves under a sovereign God, to trust him, and then to go about living. Tremendous freedom and hope and joy, even in the midst of all of the kinds of circumstances that may come our way. Living well in a life, in a world we cannot control, not in the sense that we would like, recognizes what is certain, it's death, and what is uncertain, it's life. And it leads us to see also, hopefully, that what is a gift. What is a gift? Life is not a gift to be wasted. The life that we have is not a gift to be wasted. In fact, the gift of life is to be enjoyed. The gift of this life is to be enjoyed. Now, that's hard, I know. There are a lot of uncertainties and experiences in this life that make it very difficult to enjoy it. But let's consider what the preacher says here. Verse 7, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. A well-known preacher wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life, and he talked about a retired couple in that book who wasted their last years collecting seashells. Now, the point of his book was to see something bigger and better in life, and I agree with that underlying premise, but I don't agree with him condemning the retired couple who were collecting seashells. Didn't allow much room for enjoying life along the way. Life is a gift, and gifts are to be enjoyed. You don't give a gift to be ignored or tossed aside. Get this David Gibson, in his work on Ecclesiastes, says, God takes pleasure in your pleasure, He's given it to you. Now, ultimately, yes, we want our pleasure to be ultimately in God. We've been talking about that through our Ecclesiastes series. When we keep the thing that's ultimate in the ultimate spot, then we can begin to enjoy the good things in all of their spots. But here's the thing. Enjoy all the good things in their spots. Enjoy the things that God has blessed you with. Of course, we don't want to see 
gifts become ultimate, only God is ultimate. But we are in to enjoy the gifts of life because that's God's purpose in them. Maybe some of you feel guilt around that. God's purpose in these gifts is that we would recognize that he, the giver of the gifts, find great joy in them because he takes pleasure in our pleasure. So the gift of life is to be enjoyed. As we enjoy the things in this life, as we go about enjoying the gifts in this life, as we enjoy this life, we begin to see and recognize and realize that these gifts along the way are pointing us forward to a a greater joy, a greater gift, if you will, that we will know in full measure, that we are tasting some things in this life along the way that make us anticipate a fuller meal of them later. The gift of life anticipates something better. The gift of life anticipate something better verse 9 enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun and then in that passage in those verses around that consider all the things the preacher uses to drive home that life is a gift eating drinking white clothing oil on the head a wife what does this make you think of a wedding a feast There are many things the preacher could have used to draw out that life is a a gift. But these are important because they point us forward to an even greater, fuller, forever expression of what these gifts of life are leading us to see. And that is the presence of God with our Redeemer King in glory. That Our previous series, Revelation, wrapped up with what? A wedding. A wedding. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 4. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The certainty of death will be no more. The uncertainties of life that bring about levels and levels of pain will be no more. The gift of life will be fully enjoyed in the presence of God because of the sufficiency of his grace and the, and the power and might of his king. So when you enjoy the things in this life, And you see them as gifts along the way. Those gifts are pointing you forward to an even greater gift, an even greater feast, an even greater joy that will come one great and glorious day. The one who does have actual control over everything, everything in the entire cosmos, heavens and earth, and our little specks of lies or mists, as James calls them. The one who does have control over all things, over life, over death, over time, 
is the one who redeems a people to himself with great joy and restores all things in this broken, broke-down world. The gift of life is filled with many things that taste of this great day. And they are to encourage our hearts to anticipate the fullness of this great day. And in so doing, it can bring sweetness, even when it is hard to make sense of what is certain in death and what is uncertain in life through this frustrating world. We are not in control, and it's okay to come to grips with that. In fact, let me encourage you to do that. Come to grips with it. Death is certain. It's okay to come to grips with that. You can't escape it. Life is uncertain. But this life we have is a gift to be enjoyed. And in the enjoyment of life under the sun, know that the one above the sun, over the sun, has an even greater day in store for those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. We can live well while not being in control. Resting in the God who is. Relying on the grace he gives. Enjoying the things he provides. To his glory and to our good. And let's go to him now even in prayer. God, we thank you that while life can indeed be very hard and very difficult and be filled with so many uncertainties that end with one very final certainty in death, God, we certainly know that you are over it all. When nothing happens outside of your sovereign reach, that you are also good and gracious. As we said earlier, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, you are good. And you're good to us and help us to see the many good things that you bring into our lives. Even if our lives are filled with great heartache, God, help us, encourage us, draw near to our brokenheartedness, we ask. For those of us who are struggle with being in control of things and find life to be very frustrating because it is abrasive to our attempts of control, God, I pray that, you'd, that you would help us see the fool's errand, that is, that we would have hearts that would be able to rest in you and live with a sense of, of joy and of purpose in the midst of such uncertainty. God, we thank you that you care for us. And while our perspective is quite limited, yours is lacking nothing. So would you encourage our faith and trust and hope in you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old hymn playing in my head now, but I can't say the words right. The gist of it is, we don't know about now, but we know who holds tomorrow. We know he holds us. So would you please stand as we close with this song.